The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On May 11th, 2011, in Aurora, Illinois, a man drops his six-year-old son off at school. However, less than a few hours later, his mom checks him out. She later takes him on a three-day vacation and sadly commits suicide. He, however, has never been seen again. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Timothy Pitson. The Pitson family was made up of Timothy, six years old, the mother, Amy Fry Pitson, and husband, Timothy's father, Jim Pitson. Amy was working at a real estate company. Tim was going to elementary school, and Jim was working close by as well. I would say that their life was fairly normal. The little boy, a popular, happy little kindergartner, and life was good. Home videos and photos of the Pitts and family. They look like your normal all-American family. <laughs> I see a really happy child. You can see the true joy of childhood when you look at Timothy Pitson. Amy was so good at organizing family events, planning trips. She was very good at creating these family experiences. If you looked at these photos and videos, you'd think... And it's got a lot of good- Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement. Somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. They don't call him one-take coach for nothing. That's right, buddy. That was a good one. That was a good one. I was proud of that. And you nailed it. Well, Coachy, how you been? Been a minute. Dude, I've been... Seeing shadow people? Yes, I have. They're, they're like family these days. We're yep. like the Olive Garden. When they're here, they're family. <laughs> That's awesome. It's ridiculous, man. I just don't understand. And what makes me the maddest is when other people just fall the fuck to sleep. It's like, fuck you. <laughs> well, I'm going to have to tell you, uh, you can keep that because the last three days I've had it. It's, I'm like staring at the ceiling at like 2.30 in the morning like, come on, come on. We can do this. I'm telling you, man, push yourself. You're on summer break. Push yourself. You will believe in other dimensions. If you will just push yourself to the point where you start seeing people that aren't there, but they're fucking there. (laughs) I'm here to tell you, they're there. Oh, I. They they come out just a little, every, for every hour. You got to be up for like three days. Before you start seeing them two days, you're going to feel weird. Your head's not going to feel right. Your eyes are probably going to hurt. And you might hear just like little things like 
Did a car just pull up? Nah. What? No, I don't know what that is. But three days straight, you will start seeing these things. And for every after three days, for every hour you stay up, they come out just a little bit further from your the corner of your eye to the point where I will swear to you, at one point, I think I was up four and a half days, the hat man was standing in my kitchen. The hat man? And you all you in. Never heard, you never heard, if you haven't heard of the hat man, look him up. No, I have. Trust me, that's why I said you're all in. Well, I meant for the listeners. I'm sorry. But it, it is a man, solid black shadow, looks like he's wearing a trench coat, and he's wearing a flat-brimmed hat. And you want to talk about fuck this I'm out moment? <laughs> I went on a little walk after that. I don't blame you. Anywho, enough about my problems. Well, uh got a little traction on the last episode of Miss Carly Gousset. She's up to 400 downloads in three days, so we do appreciate it. Keep those downloads Not going. Not we, uh, bad. We are doing well, doing well, doing well. Cracked the 2,000 followers on Instagram, so thank you. We're at 210 or 2010. Nice. So, but let's, uh, let's get after this one, man. This was a request. Yeah, this is hard. I posted it on our, our private group asking if we should do it, and like 15 people were like, hell yes. Do it, do it, do it. We doing it. It's a pretty widely known case if you're into true crime. If you're not like hardcore into it, you might not have heard of it. Like Maura Murray and type of cases like that, Jean Benet Ramsey, everyone knows about those. But this one's pretty well known in true crime circles. But it's a sad one, man. When anything involving kids kind of yeah. sucks. Took me a few days to get through this one, man. It's it's pretty rough. But uh, but there might be some hope. That's true. There might be. So we're gonna get after it. If we're, we take her for if we take her on her word. Yes, there is hope. There is hope, and that's all we can ask for. So we are yeah. talking about Mister Timothy Pitson, who was born in Aurora, Illinois, on October eighteenth, two thousand four. He was the only child of his parents, James Pitson and Amy Fry Pitson. Known to his friends and family as Jim, James recalls, quote, Tim was super smart, high energy, funny. When he ran, he had a funny little waddle shuffle like a chubby old man. I had a go-kart in the back shed, and when Tim was three, I made the gas pedal so he could push it all the way down. He was out in the backyard just buzzing donuts, end quote. Now, Jim would state that Tim could also be a handful and Jim and Amy had bought him a bike with the stipulation that he was only to ride it in front of their house. Quote, so one day he comes in and goes, did you miss me? His dad recalls. I'm like, what do you mean? Tim says, I rode to my friend's house down the street. End quote. Jim did the only thing a dad could do in such a moment and shook his head and laughed. <laughs> So Jim and Amy had met in late 2002 at a going away party for Amy in Ames, Iowa. She had been working there after graduating from Iowa State, but was now moving to Antioch, Illinois, where her mom lived. 
Jim had come to Ames after finding temporary work at a water treatment business, and a friend had asked him to come along to the party. The two hit it off, despite differences in personalities. She was smart and outgoing, enjoying parties and traveling, and had a passion for reading. Jim, on the other hand, had attended the Morrison Institute of Technology in Morrison, Illinois, but saw himself as just a regular guy who liked the music, liked fixing up old Jeeps and grabbing a beer with a buddy now and then. I mean, who don't? Who don't like yeah, grabbing I mean, a beer with a buddy? I mean, that's that's pretty much the only reason men smoke meat. That's right. I mean, yeah, smoked meat is delicious, but damn, it takes 13 hours. Right. What are you going to do? <laughs> what are you going to do in those 13 hours? Well, some bitch, I'm going to drink a beer. I'm going to drink two an hour for the 13 hours I'm out there. <laughs> and that way I can still taste it. <laughs> now, Jim asked Amy out the day after the party. Soon they were seeing each other regularly. After Jim helped her move to Antioch, they began a long-distance relationship with Jim making the drive every couple of weeks. He learned some unsettling things about his new girlfriend. For one, she had been divorced three times. More concerning, she had a history of depression with spells that could send her spiraling. She had attempted suicide twice before. The first time before she had met Jim, she had parked her car on some train tracks, reconsidering only at the last moment. She told Jim that afterwards she had checked herself into a psychiatric ward for nearly a week and was prescribed medication and counseling. The second attempt occurred not long after they started dating. Driving home from an interview for a job she would eventually get, Amy was overcome with anxiety and a sense of hopelessness. She pulled to the side of the road and sat on the edge of a steep embankment. Later that day, Jim grew panicky. He hadn't heard from Amy and she wasn't answering her phone. He soon got a call from a hospital in Cedar Rapids. Amy had taken a handful of sleeping pills and tumbled 30 feet down the embankment. She had fractured a vertebra and suffered hypothermia. Jim was stunned and frightened when Amy finally called. What was happening with her? He asked, quote, well, I'm better. I'm back on my meds and I've seen a couple of doctors. They've changed stuff around and I'm feeling really good, end quote. Among her prescriptions were lorazepam, which is the generic version of Ativan for anxiety and Welbutrin and Lexapro for depression. The problem was that she didn't always take her medication. And when she didn't, she was a different person. Jim would state that, quote, she'd act really funny, big highs and lows. She would become really emotional. If I had asked whether she was taking her pills, she'd yell at me. Don't ask me about that, she would scream, end quote. He soon began to avoid the subject. Now, I'm going to pause right here in the old timeline. If you do not have anyone in your family or a close friend circle that battles depression and anxiety, you have no idea what these people can go through. It's very hard to get people to sympathize or empathize because they just, yeah, they really don't understand. And you get a whole lot of bad advice and bad just in many ways you can feel like you don't have any support because nobody understands. Correct. And just let it go or just move on. Doesn't work. It's like when people say to me, well, have you just tried that? I tried laying down earlier. Have you tried like sleeping? Like I've had, I've had that comment. Well, have you tried sleeping? Like, don't be like, are you fucking serious right now? Get the f I will fucking kill you and your whole family if you say something like that to me again. Have I tried sleeping? 
<laughs> we are where we're at because I've tried sleeping and I can't do it. Yeah, it's like, no, never tried it. Just figured I didn't need it. Yeah. <laughs> Just figured how this people are supposed to function in life. Yeah, my anxiety has been off the charts since about April and just a I told this the other day to some friends of mine and it it's all irrational stuff and I know it's irrational but I was driving Tuesday to meet some people I used to work with for lunch and that's when all those storms started rolling through and I pulled up the radar at a red light and saw that there was a big thunderstorm about to hit the house and I seriously considered turning my truck around to see if I could beat the thunderstorm home so that I could unplug my computers <laughs> knowing damn well that my 17-year-old son was at home and could do it anyway. And it took me 10 minutes to realize all I had to do was call him and get him to do it. Sometimes you just have irrational. It just, it's irrational. It is, man. It, it, it's, it drives me crazy. So I empathize with her. and But... If you find a medicine that works, you've got to stick with it. You know, and that that's the the underlying thing here. So Amy's sister was familiar with her patterns of behavior and was empathetic. They'd grown up in Libertyville and, quote, did not have an easy family life, her sister Kara would say, and would not go into specifics. Quote, it's just something that me and my sister and my brother have all struggled with in our different ways, end quote. Whatever they were, those childhood struggles appeared to have affected Amy profoundly. Quote, my sister basically spent her life searching for something that would make her happy. You know, this job will make me happy. Living here will make me happy, etc. End quote. When her first husband introduced her to the Mormon faith, to which she would remain a believer for the rest of her life, she thought that might be the answer. But that, like so many other promising things, was followed by an inevitable letdown. Quote, I think at her core she was just unhappy and she was not able to get through that. The counseling, the medication, none of it really worked, end quote. Concerned that she might pass her depression to her children, Amy did not want to have kids. Both she and Jim assumed that they would not be able to anyway because Jim was a survivor of Hodgkin's lymphoma when he was roughly 20. Mistakenly, he believed the chemotherapy had left him sterile. A little more than a year after they had started dating, Amy and Jim were surprised when Amy got pregnant. Quote, they both kind of looked at it as a miracle, a sign that this was something meant to happen, end quote, said her sister Kara. Since they were now expecting to bring a child into the world, the two decided to get married. It was a simple outdoor park ceremony in May 2004 with Amy four months pregnant. By now, they were living in Aurora where Amy's father had given them both jobs in his commercial real estate business. Any misgivings Amy may have had about being a mother disappeared when Timothy was born. They named him after Amy's brother, who had died at birth, adding the unconventional extra M in Timothy to distinguish between the two. Hmm. Quote, it was like all of a sudden her life had meaning that, okay, maybe this is it. I was meant to be Tim's mom and this is my path. And it did seem to be it for a while. She seemed to be very happy. They were inseparable. They almost spoke their own language. He was the apple of her eye. Now, Jim was equally thrilled to be a father. And as soon as Tim was old enough, he took him on go-kart rides and fueled little Timothy's Obsession with matchbox cars, buying him all sorts of different ones. 
Unfortunately, as people with depression and anxiety know, Amy's depression came back. This time it was worse than ever. To make matters worse, the couple started having money issues due to Amy losing her job when her father had to close his business. After Tim was born, Jim had landed a job that designed, built, and furnished schools. Amy would eventually get a job with a property management company near their home, but the arguing did not stop. The two had nearly divorced in 2008 when Jim discovered texts between his wife Amy and one of her three ex-husbands discussing plans for a rendezvous while Jim was out of town. Quote, they'd had lunch a couple of times and they were supposed to meet that weekend. I told her to make up her mind. If you want to be with that guy, go be with that guy. We will get a divorce and I don't care how much money your dad has. I'll find a way to get custody of Timothy. End quote. That's... I don't know, man. It's not something good to say to somebody that's in the state she was in, but how could he have known how bad it was? You well, never know till it's over. It was kind of telling when he would quit asking, when he said he would quit asking about her medicine. It, it's just that one little thing, well, I'm not going to bring this up. I'm not going to bring that up. And then you say one thing, and it cuts her to the core. And the thought of losing Tim hit home with Amy. One of her biggest fears was that a judge would give Jim custody of Timothy because she had a history of mental health issues. That terrified her, her sister Kara would state. Amy decided to stay with Jim, but Jim told her, quote, if I find another text to your ex, we're done. As far as he knows, there was no further contact. In mid to late April of 2011, Jim and Amy would hit another rough spot, and they began to argue over the least little things. According to Jim, the arguments could be over anything like something he didn't do or something he did do, and Aaron Amy had asked him to run that he had forgotten about. But the big one was centered on a birthday trip to the Bahamas that Amy had taken the week of May 4th, 2011, with her best friend. Jim was irritated that his wife had insisted on just the two women going, not Jim or her best friend's husband, Tim. Jim recalls Amy telling him, quote, you cannot stop me, end quote. Now, Jim did not know what to expect when he picked up Amy from the airport after the girl's trip to the Bahamas. He was relieved when she climbed into the car and acted as if the argument about the trip had never happened. He re recalls, quote, she had a good time. Things were perfect, but she seemed back to normal, end quote. The next week, Amy came home early from work saying that she didn't feel good. Jim called his boss and got it approved that he could come in late the next day so that he could take Tim to kindergarten. After dropping Tim off, he would then drop off Amy at her job. So just before 8 a.m. on Wednesday, May 11th, 2011, Jim and Amy pulled into the car rider line at the Greenman Elementary School off Galena Boulevard in Aurora. According to Jim, quote, Tim hopped out of the back seat of the Jeep, waved and said, love you, Dad, end quote. Jim said, I love you too. I'll see you in a little bit. And he watched his son in his T-shirt and green shorts walk into school with his Spider-Man backpack bouncing up and down. Oh, God. When, yeah. It's awful. It's awful. When Jim got Amy to her job, he kissed her and told her he loved her. She responded with, I love you too, and then watched her go into the building. Jim turned and headed to work. So, in Illinois, kindergarten is a little different than it is around here. I don't know if you found this little nugget. The kindergarten day in Aurora begins at 8 and ends at 10.30 a.m. What? Yes. God, I wonder, if that job pays the same. <laughs> I'm moving. If that, yeah. 
If that job pays the same as my job now, I am moving. I read that and I about fell out of my chair. You know what they probably have to do is the teachers probably have to do their planning period from like 1030 to four. Can't leave the room. It'd be awful watching YouTube all day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We don't talk about that. <laughs> oh, man. It was around this time that Jim would pull into the school parking lot and head in to get Tim. A teacher at the check-in desk looked at Jim with a puzzled look and stated, quote, what are you doing here? He responded with, I'm here to pick Tim up. She responds with, well, he left this morning. Oh. Jim said, do what? Can I see who signed him out? And when he looked at the signature, it was Amy's. The teacher explained that Amy had come in and claimed that there was a family emergency. Livid, Jim began calling Amy. There was no answer. He left a message. What's up? Talk to me. Amy never returned the call. Jim would recall the Chicago Magazine, quote, I was thinking, God damn it, Amy, really? You're just going to take Tim somewhere for the day without even telling me? He took the rest of the afternoon off. Something was going on. The only thing that he could think of was that Amy was still angry that he had objected to her girl's trip. Amy had a history of just disappearing when she became really upset. She'd take off for a couple of hours or longer sometimes and drive somewhere to clear her head. The thing that bothered Jim was that she had taken Timothy with her this time. This was something she'd never done before. Jim calmed down and left Amy another message. Quote, hey, I'm not mad anymore. Just tell me what's going on. End quote. With the hours passing by, Jim's concern increased exponentially. He began making phone calls. One was to Amy's sister, Kara. Have you heard from her? He asked. She hadn't. Kara would tell him, I'm sure she's fine. I'm sure everything's fine. She too knew of Amy's inclination for taking off when she was feeling overwhelmed. With Jim's call, Kara's mind flashed back to a call she had received from Amy just two days earlier. The argument with Jim was still bugging Amy. Quote, she obviously wanted to talk, Kara says, but I was late for something. I just wasn't up to getting into something heavy at the moment. So I rushed her off the phone. Amy rarely reached out for help. That she did on this occasion must have meant she was hurting badly. Kara never dreamed it would be the last time she would talk to her sister. With Amy's history of disappearing for hours on end when she felt overwhelmed, this led Jim not to call the police at first. He was holding out hope that within minutes he would hear from her. However, Jim discovered that Amy had not taken her pills with her. He found full bottles in the medicine cabinet and theorized that Amy may not have been using them for several days. Oh, wow. That's no good. No bueno. That evening, he contacted the Aurora Police Department. Quote, well, we have to give her a little more time. Another 24 hours at least, end quote, is what he was told. My argument to that statement would have been, I understand she's a consenting adult, but she has my child. So... I don't know. That's either just blowing off, being lazy, or incompetent. Well, I mean, she is, she is his mom. I mean, it's not like... I know there's a fine line there, and I understand that, but I'm just saying, as the other parent, I would have been like, look, I don't... If she can go do whatever she wants to, but the fact that she checked my son out early... Yeah. And she's not called, this is no longer about her, it's about him. 
That's where I was. That's thinking. a great point. And I mean, they should have taken it seriously. If, but is there any details about did he fully explain? To I them? couldn't find. I'm sh- surely he did, but I couldn't find where he pleaded with them. They he just said they told him he had to wait 24 hours. Yeah. So it was not until the next day that they sent the Aurora Police Department sent two officers out to his work. Quote, they said, okay, we'll just take the missing persons report. Do you have a picture of the two of them? Jim thought for a minute and realized he had something that might work. So he went home and found a dot matrix photo of them at Chuck E. Cheese and said, quote, this is the best I can do off the top of my head. The officers responded with, okay, we'll file this. And if something else happens, we'll get back to you, end quote. Now, surprisingly, during the afternoon of Friday, May 13th, 2011, Amy finally called her mother. Amy's mom would immediately call Amy's sister, Kara, after the phone call with Amy. Amy's mother would tell Kara, quote, everything's fine. She was upset and she just needed some time alone. Kara said that everyone in the family breathed a sigh of relief, like, okay, she'll be coming home soon. One of Amy's next calls was not to Jim, but to his older brother. Puzzled and concerned, Chuck asked her to call Jim. Chuck would tell Amy that Jim had a right to know where his wife and child were. Amy's reply chilled Chuck to the bone. She told him, quote, Tim is my son and I can do what I want, end quote. As soon as they hung up, Chuck called Jim. Jim immediately tried to call Amy again, not once, not twice, but three separate times. And each time he called, it would just ring and ring and ring and eventually go to voicemail. At some point, it is or was discovered that Amy had tried to call Jim, but the call didn't go through. Jim believes that is why Amy had called his brother Chuck, but unfortunately he doesn't know for sure. So just after lunch on Saturday, May 14th, 2011, Jim is visited by two detectives with the Aurora Police Department. They explain that they have some information regarding Amy. He is relieved as he lets the detectives into his house because he is thinking Amy and Tim have been found and he's going to be reunited with his wife and son. The detectives explain that they have found Amy and she is deceased. Jim is in such a state state of shock that he actually asked the detectives, what do you mean deceased? He had never thought that that was the end game for Amy. The detectives go on to explain that Amy was found in a Rockford motel dead of an apparent suicide. So as Jim is trying to grasp what is going on, it hits him. The detectives have not said anything about Timothy. So he immediately says, where is Tim? Where is my son? The detectives explain that they have no idea where Timothy is because he was not at the motel that Amy was found at. Now, a couple of hours later, after the detectives leave, Jim learns of the suicide note that Amy left. Now, that suicide note has never been published that I know of. The following day, Amy had sent letters to her mother and the friend that she took the trip to the Bahamas with. They arrive the day after they discover her body. In all of the letters, her suicide note and the other two, she states, I've taken Tim somewhere safe. He will be well cared for, and he says that he loves you. 
Please know that there is nothing that you could have said or done that would have changed my mind, end quote. I know, man. I mean, I could you imagine? No, I can't. That's, that's, uh, I can't. I don't, and it, it, it breaks my heart to know that in her mind, she didn't have, she felt like she didn't have an out. She didn't have anybody, like you said, she didn't have anybody to talk to. She didn't feel like she had anybody to talk to, I should say that. Yeah. And the hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I know her sister Kara went spiraling down after this happened uh, because she felt guilty for rushing her off the phone that day. But you never, you know, you never know. No, you definitely don't. And like, how could I mean, how could you? How yeah, she's she probably know? had that conversation with Amy twenty five times, probably growing up, and and you know, it was just like, look, I got something to do. I'll call you back. And when she called her back, you know, Amy may have told her, oh, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. Because you don't want to be a burden, you know, because you know sometimes if you have anxiety that it's it's irrational as hell. So, but with her fourth marriage failing, Amy began planning a final act. And Kara would state, quote, I believe to the core of my being that Amy knew what she was going to do to herself and that she did not want her son to grow up with a legacy of suicide. I think in her way by giving him to another family. She thought Tim would be loved and cared for by what she would consider a normal loving family and not have to grow up with this stigma, end quote. Now, investigators use the suicide letter and the other two letters to see if there are any clues as to where Timothy may be. They also begin reconstructing the last three days of Amy's life. Combining cell phone data, surveillance video, and iPass records, which is the... Illinois, I think toll pass, kind of like the peach pass in Georgia. Every state's got one. Yeah. Detectives were able to piece together a very odd journey. One that would total over 500 miles covering six counties of Illinois and Wisconsin with stops at two water parks and a zoo. Basically within minutes of Jim dropping Amy off at work that Wednesday morning, she returned to Tim's school in her own car, a blue 2004 Ford Expedition that she had left parked at her job the day prior. Surveillance video shows her walking through the school's glass doors to the front desk at 8.15 a.m. On the video, you can see Tim appear roughly 20 minutes later. Amy reaches out her hand for his, holds the open or holds the door open for him and follows him outside. At around 10 a.m., she pulled into an auto repair shop in LaGrange. It has been theorized that she knew she needed some minor repairs if she was going to take her vehicle on a 500-mile trip. The mechanic tells her that it will take a couple of hours. One of Tim's favorite places, the Brookfield Zoo, was not that far from the mechanic shop, so Amy asked if someone could take her and Tim to the zoo. Another mechanic obliges, and Amy and Tim return to the shop in the afternoon to pick up the expedition. They then drive just over an hour north to Key Lime Cove Water Resort, which is now called the Great Wolf Lodge in Gurney. They spend the night there. All the while, she's ignoring texts and panicked voicemails from Jim and her family. The next day, Thursday, they headed to the Kalahari Resort in Wisconsin Dells, stopping along the way on I-94 to get gas and drinks. Amy would also stop at a convenience store to buy Tim clothes, a toy car, and a craft kit. 
At this point, Amy still has not returned any of the messages. The following morning, Amy and Tim are seen checking out of the resort. Surveillance video captured them waiting at the counter. Amy holds Tim's hand and glances inside his Spider-Man backpack that she's carrying. Tim is seen fidgeting, obviously bored out of his mind. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. These images, however, would be the last known sighting of Timothy Pitson. That's terrible. Just, it's just awful. But, I mean, I don't know. I was gonna, well, I was gonna say like, well, at least you got to go to the water parks. But who, man, who gives a shit that, that you know? That yeah. Amy drove south on I-39, then west on I-88 for about 170 miles, and at 12.30 p.m. she stopped and over the next hour and a half made the calls to her family and friends. Those she phoned felt reassured that everything was okay. Tim could be heard in the background in some of the calls at one point saying he was hungry. Amy even put him on the phone for a short time with Jim's brother Chuck. Whatever happened to Tim almost certainly occurred in the hours following those phone calls. Immediately after she hung up, Amy turned off her phone and drove south along the Rock River to Sterling, Illinois, a small manufacturing and steel town surrounded by farmland about 80 miles west of Aurora. To this day, no one knows why she went there, not even her family. When they are interviewed by detectives, they state that they were not aware that she had any acquaintances in Sterling. But Amy's eye-pass history showed that the months earlier, she made two trips to the Sterling area, which she never mentioned to Jim or any of her other family members. Could she have been scouting at a rendezvous point to hand Tim off? Meeting with the people she would entrust him to? Both of those are plausible, Sterling is one of the detective's few solid leads at the time. Now, Amy's exact whereabouts for the next several hours are unknown, but at 8 p.m., she resurfaces. A surveillance camera captures her alone at a Sullivan's Foods in Winnebago near Rockford. The footage shows her paying for stationery and envelopes, presumably to write her last letters, she then checks into the Rockford Motel between 11.15 and 11.30 p.m. The next day, a maid around 12.30 p.m. would discover her body. Now, Amy had locked the door with the security chain, but the maid was able to open it enough to see Amy's body laying on the bed. Under the bed, police officers found the box cutter she had used to commit suicide. Oh, golly. And it was to her wrist and her neck. You were, she was serious. Yeah, she was. Let's just say that. Cause golly, there are so many easier ways to do that. Yep. There are, um, there's some articles out there about her sister wanting to see her body and, and things like that. And, um, it's just, man, it's awful. They also, authorities also find a partially consumed bottle of Triaminic, which is a liquid cough and cold medicine for children, and Timothy's child identification card. Including in Amy's note, a message to the motel staff was there saying that she was sorry that they had to clean up after her. 
Did she do it like in the bathtub at least? Uh, the way that read, she did it on the bed. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, that happens a lot more often than they like to tell you. Oh, yeah. People committing suicide in a hotel, but golly. Just imagine being a maid and you just never know. You never know when it's going to happen. But nope. it's probably going to happen. That's like when they tell train conductors when they're training them. It's not if you kill somebody, it's when. And there's not going to be a thing you can do about it. Nope. But yeah, just imagine how many how many maids on in the country have walked into just a horrific scene. Well, and, and to take in consideration some of those maids that work at some of those seedier motels too. There's no telling, you know, I bet every day they open a the door praying to God they don't find somebody. Yeah. You know, the, the hotels around my my part of the part of the state, they'll actually hire people and give them like a room. Huh. Like still stay there permanently. But of course, they have to handle something if there's a big mess late at night or if there's, you know, there's catches to it. Don't get me wrong, but. It's a roof over your head. Yeah, if you're desperate, you need a roof. It's not a bad option. Might want to look into it. Now, detectives were confident in the fact that neither Timothy's backpack nor the toys that Amy had bought him, including a Hot Wheels starter set and a toy truck, were found in the motel. This was a sign that he still had them with him and he was still alive. It is a good sign, honestly. If you got us, if you're grasping for straws for something positive, it's not bad. Now, on the flip side of that coin was the fact that authorities found blood in the back of the expedition. It was sent off for analysis, and the next day, law enforcement officials from the Aurora Police Department, the FBI, the U.S. Marshal Service, and other agencies conducted their first ground search. Authorities would comb rural roads and parks along I-88 and I-39 near the Sterling area for clues to where Tim could be. However, nothing was found. Now, investigators would literally carpet bomb Amy's entire route with flyers that had a picture of Tim on it. Jim was on the local news pleading for Tim's return. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children was alerted, and Tim was immediately added to its database. Potential sightings trickled in, but none panned out. On May the 20th, 2011, Amy's wake is held at the Church of Jesus Christ of Later Day Saints in Sugar Grove, Illinois. Friends and family were still in shock, and her sister Kara recalls, quote, A lot of people she worked with and went to church with were saying things like, Amy would never kill herself. Something's wrong here. We don't believe this story. I just remember thinking, I don't know what to tell you, but she did. Clearly, you don't know her as well as you think you did, end quote. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think the possibility of foul play for her is, I don't think it's possible. No, I don't either. You can rule that out right now. Yeah. Jim was a walking zombie. He didn't eat anything. He didn't speak much. He just stood next to the casket. He never moved from that spot. He was just totally numb. Jeez. The funeral. Blame her. The funeral took place the next day at the same church. And there was a media frenzy 
and the family made sure that none of the media were allowed inside. However, cameras were rolling when the mourners emerged from the church. The circus atmosphere made Kara realize how sensational the story had become. Despite everything that had transpired, Jim had Amy buried beneath a headstone bearing the inscription, Loving Mother. The investigation continued, and sometime in August of 2011, police confirmed that the blood found in the back of the expedition was, in fact, Timothy's. Authorities first believed that this was a sign that Amy had done something to Timothy. However, when they tell Jim and Amy's family of the blood test results and the DNA results, they are relieved to find out that the blood was more than likely from a severe nosebleed that Tim had in that vehicle just a couple of days before Amy took him from school. How do they tell that? Just because it was, I guess, drier than... Well, no, I think... um, So the way I kind of read it, and it was on multiple things, the way I read it was the police totally believed that, hey, they didn't tell the family that they had found blood in the back seat, so they just sent it off for analysis. Once they get that analysis back, then they approach the family and be like, look, we found blood in the back of the expedition, and we had it tested, and it's Timothy's. And so they're kind of like thinking they're breaking bad news and Jim and the family, Amy's family members are all like, well, yeah, you would have because he had this horrible nosebleed like four days earlier before he went missing. And so they kind of authorities kind of were like, oh, well, we didn't know that. So that's another positive. Oh, I don't know. That might be the family just grasping. That's true. But again, I mean, that's, that would have been my first, you know, if, if I was in Jim's shoes, that's the first thing I would have said too. you know, where did you find it? Was it, you know, a large amount? Was it on this side of the seat? We tried to get it up. Da, 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 da. That's a good point. I mean, he, he would definitely know if there was blood and where it was. And yeah. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point. Now in late December, the police investigation centered around a potential sighting of Timothy at a Denny's restaurant in North Aurora. But when they tracked down the car that, the boy had left in, it turned out that he was actually the son of the driver of the car. Another false lead and another false hope. Now, nearly eight years after Timothy Pitson's disappearance on April the 3rd, 2019, a woman in Newport, Kentucky, just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati, spots a skinny young man who looked bruised and agitated pacing at an intersection. The woman would later describe the encounter to a local TV station. Quote, he walked up to my car and he went, can you help me? He then said, I just want to go home. Please help me. He tells me he's been kidnapped and he's been traded through all these people and he just wants to go home. End quote. When authorities catch up with him, he would tell detectives he had been held captive in Ohio by two men with tattoos who looked like bodybuilders. He was able to escape, he said, and run across the bridge into Kentucky. His name, he told them, was Timothy Pitson. National news outlets descend on this small Ohio town where the young man was being questioned by police. I remember this happening. Though they said they had not yet determined whether he was actually Timothy, several media outlets and even a police report gave the impression that Timothy had likely been found. All day as they waited for DNA test results, Jim... Amy's sister, Kara, and the rest of Amy's family suffered over the possibility that this was indeed Timothy. Jim fought to keep his expectations in check. 
there had been so many false signings over the years. Authorities, however, were certainly taking this claim seriously. The Aurora detectives who had worked the case were making the five-hour drive to Newport to check things out for themselves. But as more information emerged, Jim grew skeptical. The young man did know certain facts about the disappearance, but he wasn't aware of more private details like about the family cat and dog. When Jim asked why the police didn't run the person's fingerprints to see if they matched, Timothy's police said he had refused to cooperate. Jim said that was another red flag. Then Jim Jim sees a photo on TV, and it was a grainy picture of the young man in a faded red hoodie, his hands buried in his Army surplus jacket. And Jim states, quote, I thought maybe there's a possibility it's him, but I don't think so, end quote. Jim's suspicions were confirmed the next day when the DNA test came back, and it was not Timothy, but a 23-year-old man named Brian Rennie. Brian had a history of psychiatric issues. He had gleaned details about the case from a 2020 episode. When asked why he claimed to be Tim, Brian told authorities he wished he had a father like Timothy Pitson's. There's still no reason to freaking give the man false hope like that. That's just, I don't know. That's screwed up, man. Yep, it is, man. Now, Brian Rennie would plead guilty to aggravated identity theft and be sentenced to two years in prison. Dang. Yeah, they did not take that one lightly. No, they did not. Jim remains convinced Timothy is still alive and will be found. He has a theory of what might have happened to him, one that he has shared with the police. He would rather not discuss it in detail in the public eye in case that tips off anyone involved. He has divulged some generalities of how he thinks the events may have unfolded, that whoever took Tim raised him, quote, off the grid in a remote area where the boy would be less likely to see news reports about his disappearance or... Perhaps those people took Tim overseas. The Aurora Police Department and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children also continue to operate under the assumption that Tim is alive. In May of 2021, the center released an updated age progression image of what Timothy might look like today at 16, which now he would be 17. No, he'd be 18. No, you're right. I don't know why I thought that. Yes, he would be 18. But... I mean, go ahead. I'll, I'll I'll talk about it at the end when we get to theories. The resemblance to Jim is even more striking now. The chin, the dimples, the eyes, and the smile all look just like Jim. What gives the family hope and what gives Jim hope is that no one would have ever believed that J.C. Duggard was alive. In that famous case, J.C. was found 18 years after being kidnapped at age 11 by a couple who concealed her identity. So there is hope. It's that kind of hope that Jim holds on to. He says, quote, it's only going to take one person to figure out that that's Tim. One person is going to solve the case. Say to Tim, hey, is this you? And the cops are going to take over and I'm going to ask two questions. Why did you do this? And why did you not bring him home? And That, ladies and gentlemen, is the case of Timothy Pitson. Now, of course, there are two camps of people in this case. There are those that believe that she did something to Timothy and hid his remains. But most people, after going through some of the evidence in this case, 
believe that she may have given him to a family. But what I was about to say earlier, uh, I mean, at this point, he's he'd be 18, and it's a famous case. Like, surely he would rem- you would remember who you were at six. You would like, think. You're going to remember that your name was Timothy Pitson. You're going to, unless they have completely brainwashed you. But And that goes into the possibility that he's not in the country. Even now, even oh even, no, no, no. Even yeah. if he was in another country. I'm this is like, so famous that you would think that this makes the rounds even in other countries. I agree. Yeah. During this whole thing, when I was researching it, I I went back and forth. I just I empathize with his mother. I my heart goes out as a parent. I just I can't I don't know, man. There's just flip a coin as to whether or not he's alive or not. I mean, I certainly hope so, but Me too. I'm just saying at this point in the digital age that we live in, you would think he would have seen himself. Maybe he'll see this podcast. Maybe. Maybe so, man. That's the reason we do some of this stuff. And he'll be like, son of a bitch. My name's Tim. I was, yeah, I, I, I remember now. But I mean, like the fam- the person that was faking it. If he was alive and well, not being held captive or anything like that, how could have he not seen that media circus? Correct, yeah. And so that's the thing, you know, that gives... There's a lot of people that have theorized, and there are, of course, trolls out there that say they know what Jim's theory is. And um, from what I can gather, he's only told the cops and he refuses to tell anybody else. I would like to know. I would too. It's, it's kind of hinted around that maybe it's a off grid family, but like a rural farming family in the north, say Montana, North Dakota. Wyoming area or over into Canada. They're definitely out there. That's true. But like you said, this is a real famous case. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you're on a rural, a rural, a rural, a rural farm in Montana and all you do is work from dawn till dusk, you don't get a whole lot of them there. Internet's. They're on the Starlink. Yeah, I would think that that would be a good chance for him to stay hidden. How just news didn't make it out there. Never yeah. came across it himself on on the internet. Like, but who hasn't Googled their own name? You know. Oh, I screwed up and did that one time in my coaching heyday. I quickly yeah. said I'll never do that again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of forums out there where people are very passionate about high school sports. We wasn't world beaters, I can tell you that, but there was a lot yeah. of people that didn't like me, brother. <laughs> I know that's hard to understand. <laughs> no, I can believe it. That's like one time when I was coaching football in my hometown, the big – the big vent everybody got on. We had a game against Ringgold. 
and somebody said, oh, they'll win 21 to 7. And it said, shit. They they couldn't score 21 points on their defense. <laughs> like, golly. Dang. That's two insults in one. That's a twofer. And it's true. We did not. We lost that game. Dang. So I what's your final for, theory? I coached there for three years. For two years, won three games. Damn. Yeah, not good. But anyway. My theory is, unfortunately, I think she killed him. I'm not sure how she, being the person she was, so skillfully hid him and the evidence of that. But she did it. She pulled it off. Unfortunately, that's my theory. I just don't see how you stay hidden unless you're being held captive. I just don't see how you stay hidden growing up in the social media age, especially being a young kid. You know they're going to have the MySpaces and the Facebooks and the Insta chats and all that stuff. The TikTokers. Speaking of which, yeah. man, we got 250 followers on TikTok. I think I've made six videos. That's awesome. <laughs> Anyway, I'm like I said, I go back and forth. If she did that, I think the the key to finding him or finding any evidence would be in that town. And they said that town was a manufacturing town, and it didn't. I didn't research the town in depth, but it may be one of those manufacturing towns where you know there's landfills and shit that, or things that I don't even want to let my mind wander to, that would be able to dispose of a young small child like that well here's how uh, here's how small that town's got to be is during half my research i thought it was aurora colorado i did because i mean that's the one that's Comes known up, yeah. for columbine so that's the one i heard of Speak. i was like illinois <laughs> chicago police got involved in a colorado case <laughs> passionate those gentlemen <laughs> speaking of columbine there is a survivor of columbine that has taken to tiktok to dispel a lot of myths i have just recently found his page and i have not dove into it but if that kind of stuff if the conspiracy theories around that interest you i'm sure if you have a TikTok account, you can just search Columbine Survivor. He is uh, got a beard, kind of reddish, strawberry blonde beard, wears glasses. I read the I read the book about Columbine, and man, if they would have pulled off what they wanted to pull off, it would have been whole, like the worst school shooting ever. Like you didn't ever top it. They rigged bombs in the cafeteria to go off. And if those bombs would have went off, the library would have collapsed on top of the cafeteria. Cafeteria, And their original plan was to stand outside and during that chaos, just pick people off. But like in the book, it essentially discusses that after about 17 minutes, they got bored and stopped killing. They started like fucking with shit. Like, they just didn't kill anymore. And then eventually 
however much time went by, they they off themselves. But yeah, it said at some point they were just done. They, I don't know, guess lost the thrill of it. Crazy. All that mm-hmm. shit's crazy. But anyway, well, recommendations. Well, I didn't have one until you mentioned the Combine Survivor on TikTok. Another good one to follow on TikTok is Maura Murray's sister. Yes. She does very very good. I can't exactly remember her name, but, man, hers is some interesting stuff. She talks a whole lot about the case, about things that people like us have gotten wrong. Remember that complaint we got about our Maura Murray case? Yeah, that we didn't do a good job. And in, we didn't yeah, we go didn't in depth or something. I'm like, My, we, we said at the, at the beginning, beginning we wasn't going to. <laughs> we said we're just going to talk about it. If you want to know more about it, look up the plethora of other places. How I about said, the Missing Maura podcast by Tim and Lance? Yeah, it's like, yeah, she's like, you didn't do half a good a job as them. I was like, well, that's because th- we have jobs. I even told Tim when I was at that play, uh, the Northwest Arkansas Crime Fest, he was there, and I told him, I was like, man, I remember y'all's podcast were the, was the one that Coach turned me on to, and I said, I chased that rabbit till your podcast ended. Well, hopefully he'll listen to ours and give us a shout-out. Yeah, that'd be cool. On whatever podcast they're doing now. I can't remember what it's called. I'll have to look it up. But um, he's a super nice guy, man. Super nice guy. It's just as hopefully as when people get to meet us, we don't, we're just two idiots sitting here talking. So anyway. I'm pretty sure that if anybody that is a quote-unquote fan of the podcast that doesn't know us personally and got the opportunity to meet us, they would walk away going, damn, they really are just two idiots. They're just two idiots talking in a, in a basement. Like, that, they didn't lie to me. I'll give them that much. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I know last week I recommended Dr. Stevens Greer or Dr. Stephen Greer's press conference at the National Press Club. And this one's a twofer for you. Um, Sean Ryan has a podcast on YouTube and he interviews Dr. Stephen Greer. It's almost two hours long. It's pretty good. However, my solid recommendation is he just released a new video. He he is the our movie documentary, whatever you want to call it. He's the one that did Unacknowledged several years ago. He just released one called The Lost Century and How to Reclaim It. And man, the stuff he goes over in there about zero point energy and stuff like that. It will blow your mind. It does touch Hmm. on the UAP UFO situation, but he really hones in on that suppressed technology. So if you're into that kind of thing, I highly recommend it. You can find it on Amazon. I'm sure YouTube, YouTube has it for a price, but anyway, that is my recommendation. Well, Coach, do you have anything else for the listeners out there? Well, for the four of you that stuck with the whole episode, we appreciate it very much, but you know I don't. Deuces.